I have a colleague named Brian Victoria. I don't know where he's at politically now, but back in the day, he was quite a radical uh, on the left side. So he was doing some protesting against the uh, Vietnam War in Japan, and he was causing trouble for the U.S. military a little bit. So I guess they pressured the Japanese government to cause him trouble, and they arrested him. And then he caused trouble in the prison, a hunger strike. So they put him in solitary confinement for a month. And of course, now he is Zen, by the way, Soto Zen. So he just more or less sat there, certainly all day, maybe all night. I don't know. He just meditated. He didn't move. And so he just meditated for a month in solitary confinement without moving very much. And what are they going to do when they finally let him out? He said, oh, so soon I was just starting to get into it. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. Can you learn to be happy no matter your external conditions? And how does meditation or just simple mindfulness play a huge role in that? If you don't see any benefit when you meditate, well, how about trying the technique in this episode? Because in this episode, my guest is Shinzen Young, author of the groundbreaking book, The Science of Enlightenment. And Shinzen and I explore these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. After a short break in episode releases, you see I was in Norway helping put on a just an amazing men's retreat in the ancient Viking lands of Norway. It's beautiful there. And I had an amazing time with a group of about 30 men. And well, you can learn more about retreats that I'm either hosting and facilitating or at least in some way participating in at brianreeves.com slash Norway. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash Norway. But after that pause, we're now going to change things up. And particularly from the past two episodes, which were fascinating and a bit controversial. Because my guests in both episodes were two men that have a lot of experience with non-monogamous relationships. One is Ian Ferguson, who is the husband, the man beside the ever more famous woman named Jaya, Miss Jaya, who's the founder of the five erotic blueprints. And my other guest was Robert Kandel, the man who was the business brains behind what has become an international multi-million dollar organization dedicated to promoting the female orgasm, specifically through a practice called orgasmic meditation. You should definitely go listen to those episodes. They are fascinating. And though I didn't invite those men on to specifically promote or educate on how to do non-monogamy, I'm actually pro-monogamy, though to be clear, I'm not anti-non-monogamy either. 
But anyway, those conversations were charged with potent insights and wisdom specifically around sexuality and intimacy and honesty in relationships. So definitely go check those out. But this week we're changing it up. Now this episode will appear more to you if you're specifically interested in meditation and mindfulness and particularly deep spiritual practice. Because Shinzen Young, he's first a scientist and a researcher committed to taking, as he says in his book, the mist out of mysticism. Initially interested in religious thought from a more academic perspective, once Shinzen started peering down deep into the well of particularly Eastern spiritual traditions, well, seems to me he fell in that well and tumbled like Alice down the rabbit hole. In 1960, for his doctoral dissertation in Buddhist studies at the University of Wisconsin, he actually went to Mount Koya, a remote mountain monastery in Japan where he trained and ordained as a monk in the Shingon tradition of Buddhism, becoming the first Westerner ever to complete the Shingon basic training. And when I hear the word basic training, naturally I think of my military basic training, but I have a strong sneaking suspicion that the basic training he did for Shingon Buddhism was probably a way hell of a lot harder and more challenging than military basic training. But anyway, from there, his fascinating journey far beyond pure academic interest began. Shinzen is trained extensively in each of the three additional Buddhist traditions, Vajrayana Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, and Vipassana Buddhism. And he has now practiced, taught, and researched meditation for nearly 50 years. Being predisposed to science and research, he's brilliant at illuminating the abstract concepts of meditation and spirituality with fundamental theories of math and physics. He's collaborated with neuroscientists at Harvard Medical School, University of Massachusetts Medical School, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, and the University of Vermont to study meditation's effects on the brain, the body and in service of his search for technological ways to stimulate and enhance mindfulness in individuals. You know, how to get the benefits of, say, 50 years of meditation practice into, say, 50 minutes. Now, be forewarned, no one's figured it out yet. I spent a lot of time preparing for this interview with Shinzen, studying his materials, reading his book, even studying with one of his meditation teachers, Steve James, who introduced me to Shinzen's teachings. In fact, Steve James is one of my first guests on this series of podcast episodes. When we began to speak, Shinzen and I, I immediately felt painfully ill-prepared. This man is brilliant, his wisdom profound. And you'll see he schools me straight away as I attempt to ask a relatable question that doesn't quite land the way I had hoped. And this episode is more technical than many of my other episodes, and I fear I jump around a little bit as to make it maybe difficult to follow at times. You can certainly email me at brian at brianreeves.com to let me know. Remember, that's brian with a Y at brianreeves.com to let me know. But Shinzen takes time to break down a potent mindfulness meditation practice using the six components of the human experience, what we see, hear, and feel externally and what we see, hear, and feel internally. Now, I think this is really important, and this has been really instrumental in my own meditation practice, my own mindfulness practice. It's been super, super helpful, and 
Because these six components are essentially a map of our everyday experience. And we can focus on these six components in meditation or anytime we choose to, even just standing in line at the coffee shop, for example. But this technique can not only make us happier in our lives by helping us make better decisions informed by a deeper clarity, but they can also ultimately yield the experience of enlightenment or an experience anyway of enlightenment, whatever the hell that means. And that's why you need to read Shinzen's book, The Science of Enlightenment. It's really brilliant because this experience, as he describes it, is available to everyone who seeks it, including you. So please bear with me as I help us find our way through this interview and and definitely stay tuned for Shinzen's one key insight at the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Shinzen Young, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on Men This Way. It's my pleasure. Yeah. You know, I want to begin actually by honoring one of your teachers, your meditation teacher, Steve James, uh, Guru Viking. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, he's the one who, uh, so I've done a lot of trainings with him and, and even worked with him as my coach. And he's the one that in his workshops, he, he presences your name and your work a lot. And so I just want to honor him because um, it's because of him that I got connected to you and to your work and that we're, we're here today and, you know, from a certain perspective. So great. Yeah. <sighs> and truly, since I've been diving into your work these past oh, probably year or so, you know, well, the first thing that I want to begin with is uh, just kind of ask a question that's certainly on my mind and probably on the mind of a lot of our listeners about, you know, being a Zen monk. And I understand that some Zen monks get married and have relationships and children. Was that something that you have ever done? Um, uh, Yes to the first, no to the second. Uh, Okay. So let me explain a little bit about terminology. Sure. I'm a guy that likes to really uh, clarify phrases, uh, words, categories, and so forth. Yeah. So... Technically, I am not actually a Zen monk. Okay. My lineage, technically speaking, is in something called Shingon, S-H-I-N-G-O-N. And uh, Shingon is essentially Japanese Vajrayana. Mm -hmm. So you can think of that as being similar to the practices done in Tibet, but by no means identical. So the Tantric Buddhism or Vajrayana... Mantrayana, esoteric Buddhism, these more or less mean the same thing. So if you know anything about Tibetan practice, there's actually a sort of Japanese version of that mm-hmm. called Shingon. So my quote ordination as a Buddhist monk is technically in the Shingon lineage, mm-hmm. which actually represents the last period of development of Buddhism on its native soil of India. Mm. Now, before that, though, before the diamond vehicle or Vajrayana arose in India, there was something called the great vehicle or Mahayana, Uh and that went into China, and then that sort of cross-fertilized with Chinese culture and turned into Chan, which in Japanese is called Zen. Mm. So that's actually, Zen is technically an East Asian modification of Mahayana or great vehicle. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, now it is true. I've I lived in Zen monasteries. Yeah. And I've participated a lot in Zen retreats, but technically my lineage is Shingon, but my style of teaching is mostly informed by Theravada, which is small vehicle, Hinayana, as preserved in Southeast Asia. So actually, I sort of reversed Buddhist history. I started <laughs> out with the diamond vehicle. Uh-huh at Mount Koya in Japan, and then I got, I didn't abandon that, but I got interested in Zen practice, and then I didn't abandon either of those, but I found that the systematic and relatively culture-free formulations of Buddhism that you find in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, and so forth, which is the uh, small vehicle, I find that uh, system and rigor to my nature. Mm, So mm. I sort of tend to teach within that uh, framework. So this was just a disambiguation page on terminology. Okay, good. Very important. Zen is an East Asian modification of Mahayana Buddhism. So now, in terms of what it means to be a, quote, monk, Of course, monk is an English word. It's not an Asian term. Mm. And it means something in Christianity, which traditionally is actually distinct from a priest. This is in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. But often a Buddhist clergy person is referred to in English perhaps as a monk. So um, that's fine. Now, the original system of monasticism as it existed in early Buddhism and as it currently exists in most of the Buddhist world. Most of the Buddhist world, the monks and the nuns, if they have nuns in that culture, um, and I should say, by the way, in English, monk and nun are merely the male and female, or actually, strictly speaking, a nun is a female monk. Yeah. Monja, monje in Spanish, for example. Yeah. It's the same word. Yeah. So anyway, in most of the Buddhist world, and certainly in early Buddhism, your monks are celibate, renunciate monastics. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get married, and depending yeah. on the location, you may not eat meat, etc. Mm-hmm. However, there are exceptions, and Japan is a major exception. Mm-hmm. So the um, Japanese Buddhist clergy are allowed to marry, are allowed to have kids, are allowed to eat meat, and so forth. So my lineage is from Japan. Mm-hmm. So technically, I can sort of live as a layperson, mm-hmm. and that's sort of what's expected, actually. Got it. So you have been married. Yes. And I, I asked that because, you know, a big... Um, Kind of a cornerstone of my work and, and one of the explorations we do on this podcast and for men is that question of, and, and I don't want to dive into that right now with you. We may go into that a little bit later, but it's, you know, how do we do intimacy with another human being well? Yes. Do you want me to say a couple words on that topic based on my experience with women? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, but not quite yet. I feel like there's a lot before that that I'd really love to explore with you and maybe sure. You know, great finale. Um, But what I want to start with is um, isolation, loneliness, actually. I know that in your uh, training, in your early training in the Shingon tradition, 
one of the one of the experiences that you had was a hundred days spent in isolation. And I feel like men in general, we kind of have a love-hate relationship with isolation. You know, I went to Ireland, uh, I go to Ireland almost every year. And one of my favorite things is to, you know, that's where monks and people kind of looking to be closer to God, mostly men throughout for thousands of years would go to the edge of the known universe, the known world to get away from everything and be in isolation. And, and I think a lot of us men, we still do that in different ways. We have our man caves, we may go camping, we go, or we just check out all together, you know, in front of the TV you know, as a form of isolation. And, and so I'm just fascinated by your experience with isolation and these traditions because it seems like there's something so potent and powerful in isolation. And yet it just occurs to me that most of us, men, we have no idea what to do with it, even as it speaks to us. One way to think about being in an isolated environment is that you're putting yourself in a somewhat simplified environment. Mm-hmm. Often when people do this isolation thing, they're also somewhat simplifying the input. Yeah. So within a simple environment, especially if it's really simple, austere, if you did nothing else but sort of hang out in that environment, there is a subtle tendency for that environment to give the deep mind what it needs to sort of reorganize itself. So does that make sense? It does. It does. And I notice. so, okay, so this is good because I notice what I think happens and maybe in the absence of any instruction or knowing what to do with isolation, we tend to just, eventually we get bored. Well, we get the mind, the mind wants to, you know, what, what's, there's nothing happening. I need something. <laughs> so in the statement that I made, if one was listening carefully, there's sort of good news and bad news. Yeah. So the good news about a general isolation or a general simplificatio or simplification, uh, you mentioned Christianity, they used to talk about sancta simplicitas Mm. or sacred simplicity. So there's a little bit of a good news, bad news in what I said. I said that when people put themselves in that situation, there is a subtle tendency for that situation to allow the deep mind to rewire itself. So the good news part is there is that tendency. And by rewire, I mean rewire as uh, a happier person. Hmm. And we're going to say that happiness, when I use the word happiness, or anyone in my organizations use the word happiness, that's a technical term for us. Hmm. And people can go on the internet if they're interested and Hmm. get my periodic table of happiness elements, which is basically analogous to the periodic table of chemical elements, uh, where I parse out the dimensions and subdimensions in a very broad and very deep formulation. So whenever you hear someone from the unified mindfulness community talk about, quote, happiness, they don't mean just being in a good mood. They mean every conceivable level of reducing suffering, every conceivable level of elevating fulfillment, 
all the levels of understanding yourself, including the deepest level, which most people, if they had to put a word to it, would call it a spiritual level. Understand yourself at all levels. Carry yourself skillfully in the world in terms of what you do and say. So karma, action, skillful action in the world, and ultimately a call towards service. If you were counting, I, I mentioned five categories. Relief, fulfillment, insight, ins insight into your own nature, mm -hmm. positive behavior change, aka skillful action, and a call to service. Mm -hmm. Those are five basic dimensions of human happiness. Notice that we're not just talking about hedonic rewards. We're talking pleasure, about... right. That's not just pleasure. that. There's right. a cognitive component. Yeah. Understand at many levels. In yeah. general, understand and specifically understand yourself. Yeah. And there's a behavioral component, reducing behaviors that you want to reduce, strengthening behaviors you want to strengthen to mm -hmm. be a more admirable person in the world. Mm -hmm. So when I use the word happiness, it's really broad and really deep. And we'll put that just for our listeners in case they're driving or running at the gym or something. We'll put a link to your periodic table of happiness. We'll put it in the show notes for this episode. Oh, that's great. And I can send you other reference materials great. that people can utilize if they want. So in any event, there is a subtle tendency in an isolated or simplified situation for that situation to give the deep mind what it needs to reorganize itself mm -hmm. more in the direction of happiness. Understanding happiness is not just being in a good mood, but all these other things. Yeah. So the good news is the isolation is a situation creates a kind of subtle force in that direction or creates a force in that direction. That's the good news. Yeah. The other news is that force is very subtle. <laughs> so what will often happen is people just get bored and impatient and divert themselves in different ways. Yeah. And the, rewiring that I'm alluding to a little bit takes place, but it's actually only a fraction of a percent of the potential yeah. that is in that environment. So, of course, as a mindfulness teacher, I'm a little bit of a one-trick horse in that I tend to mostly talk about happiness from the perspective of the acquisition and application of mindful awareness. Yeah. So what we do is we don't just put ourselves in an isolated environment. We catalyze the effect of that environment by implementing during part or in many cases the entirety of the day, we implement intentional focus techniques. And that's not just sitting still on the cushion, but that's as you're having your meals, as you're walking around or exercising, whatever you're doing. And so if you put yourself in a kind of isolation, of course, on a retreat, you can be isolated in a group because you're in silence, right? Right. Our retreats yeah. are all in silence. Yeah. So even if there's other people, there's sort of not other people. So 
once you potentiate the simplified situation or the quote isolated situation, once you start to potentiate that with intentional focus techniques that you're implementing throughout the day, now you're able to realize the full potential for rewiring that the isolated environment holds. Yeah. So I yeah. strongly, strongly, strongly encourage people to learn about mindful awareness and its applications. Well, I'm, you know, I see very much the two, the dichotomy of this, you know, there's a sentence in your book, which is, I thought for me, it was one of the most important sentences that I read the book, The Science of Enlightenment. It's one that I've been working to really unlock the secrets of in my life for, for years. It's the greatest favor we can do for ourselves is to come to a state where our happiness is no longer dependent on conditions. Happiness independent of conditions occurs whenever we have a complete sensory experience. And what I want to just say about that, because I'm thinking of, again, this love-hate relationship with isolation and how you know, in our prison system, we put inmates into isolation and they go insane. And yet isolation used well, let's say, in practice, perhaps with an orientation towards mindfulness can be the an ultimate, incredibly liberating. So we have this dichotomy. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me of a story. I have a colleague named Brian Victoria mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know where he's at politically now, but back in the day, he was quite a radical uh, on the left side. Uh -huh. yeah. So he was doing some protesting against the uh, Vietnam War yeah. in Japan. So you can already, this already dates it quite a bit, right? Mm -hmm. And he was causing trouble for the US military a little bit. So I guess they pressured the Japanese government to cause him trouble and they they arrested him mm. and then he caused trouble in the prison uh -huh. uh, <laughs> he, uh, as a good protester is wont to uh, do a hunger strike uh -huh. so they put him in solitary confinement for a month and when they finally let him out and of course now he is zen by the way uh -huh. soto zen so he just more or less sat there certainly all day, maybe all night. I don't know. He just meditated. He didn't yeah. move. Yeah. They let him have his Zafu, his meditation cushion. Mm -hmm. And so he just meditated for a month in solitary confinement without moving very much. Yeah. And what are they going to do when they finally let him out? He said, oh, so soon I was just starting <laughs> to get into it. Yeah. And that wasn't being facetious <laughs> or uh, even being... Um, obstreperous he, he was just yeah. telling it as it is i get it so basically there's this famous quote by the french philosopher pascal i'm mm -hmm. paraphrasing but basically it's all of our problems come from the fact that we can't just sit yes. in a room without anything else going on mm. and be perfectly happy yeah. so let's say that you were in solitary confinement or something like that. You're in a very simplified environment. Or someone's saying, you just have to sit in this room for this next month and you can have okay food and that's it. Mm -hmm. They're just going to sit in this room. So 
you will have sights, you will hear sounds, you'll have physical sensations, including smell and taste, you'll have mental images, you'll have mental talk, you'll have emotional sensations, anger, fear, sadness, embarrassment, impatience, dis impatience disgust, interest, joy, love, gratitude, humor, smile, etc., etc. You'll have physical sensations, you'll have emotional sensations. What else will happen while you're sitting in that room with, quote, nothing happening? Yeah. Well, actually, that's as far as I know, that's all that's going to happen. You're going to be aware of the same wall that you're looking at, but that is a sight. Mm -hmm. Birds might chirp or you might hear silence around you, but that's an auditory experience, even if it's silence. In Tibet, they put you in a dark cave sometimes. Mm -hmm. I know an American girl, she's somewhat of a yogini celebrity, young girl who, I mean, they literally locked her in a box the size of her body mm. for months Wow! in the dark. Now, that's getting into the realm of real-world torture, right? I mean, yeah. we've all seen that movie. Yeah. But they actually do that to people who are prepared, of course, yeah. for that. So let's say that you're in a dark cave. Are you still seeing something? Yeah, you see the black. Are you hearing something? Yeah, you're hearing silence. Are you feeling your body? Yeah. Will you have mental images? Probably a lot if you're in the dark. Because you start to mm -hmm. daydream uh, or you start to lucidly dream, etc. Mm -hmm. Will you hear your own mental chatter? Will there be physical, emotional sensations? So even if it's relatively undifferentiated, you're just seeing black, hearing silence, feeling your body relaxed, you're still seeing, hearing, and feeling. Whether it's on the inside with image talk, body emotion, whether it's on the outside with sight, sound, touch. Or whether it's restful states of undifferentiated, a gaunt felt of undifferentiated right. uh, visual, auditory, and somatic rest. You're still on. seeing, you're still hearing, you're still feeling. Now, I made a big deal about the fact that within the unified mindfulness system, happiness is a highly carefully defined technical term. Complete experience, that phrase which you used, quoting me saying, the centerpiece for happiness independent of conditions is the ability to have complete experience. Complete sensory. I'm paraphrasing what you yeah, said, but yeah. essentially that. Within the unified mindfulness perspective, complete experience is a technical term, just like happiness is a technical term, meaning we define it very carefully. So as one's mindfulness skills sharpen, one's ability to have complete experience increases. So by mindfulness skills, I mean core attentional skills concentration power, the ability to focus on what you deem relevant, sensory clarity, the ability to know what you're experiencing mm -hmm. in terms of components or subtle yeah. influences. Right. Um, not Right. Not the big stories like, well, what I'm experiencing is my boss is an asshole. No, yeah. that's not no, what we're talking about. It's sensory clarity, <laughs> sensory right? Clarity. So what part is image? What 
So my boss is an athlete. Yeah. Let's take that experience. What part of that involves mental talk? Well, obviously, you're saying to yourself, my yeah. boss is an asshole. You're probably yeah. seeing an image of your boss, and then you're reacting to their assholeness with some sort of anger or fear or feeling sorry for them or yourself, etc. Mm -hmm. So you've got a mental image, you've got a mental talk, and you've got body emotion. Yeah. So knowing what part is mental image, what part is mental talk, and what part is body emotion is to know the components of your experience. And then the thing is, though, that some of those emotional body sensations might be quite subtle. Some of those mental images might be quite subtle, maybe even subliminal. So there's two parts to the sensory clarity piece. One is the untangling of the strands. Yeah. Exactly what am I seeing? Is it on the inside or outside? Exactly what am I hearing? Is it on the inside or outside? Yeah. Same for the body, metaphorically. So concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. So you and can and before, before you get to that third one, I want to just sort of frame that a little bit as well, because I think what you're hitting at is really key to another question that, that I would have later, but I want to just sit here for a moment before we get to equanimity, because what you're pointing at right now, a friend of mine asked when I told him that I was going to have a conversation with you with a longtime meditator, he actually doesn't know about your work yet, but I said, what would you want to know? And he said, well, I want to know, look, I hear all these benefits of meditation, but the reality is when I try to sit and meditate for 10 minutes, I don't feel any benefit. I do it and okay, I kind of get through it, but I don't really, I don't, you know, it's like, it seems like it tested, I have to do it for at least weeks or months before I feel any kind of real effect or benefit. And so it's, and what I just heard you just say, Shenzhen, is that actually with some instruction, that breaking down of my boss is an asshole. I mean, if I'm just living in my boss is an asshole and I go into a 10 minute meditation, I'm just going to come out with a bigger story. My, yeah, my boss is a fucking asshole and blah, blah, blah. Whereas what you just described, the breaking down of the components as a practice in a meditation, even in just 10 minutes, that practice right there, well, okay, there's the mental image. There's my boss. There's the, okay, what's happening in my body? There's anger, there's frustration what's the mental talk? Well, he did this or he should do that. There's the story. Just even in that, just a few minutes could begin to really make meditation for someone who doesn't really maybe otherwise know what to do with it. Really potent. So you raised or your friend raised a great question. I would like to say quite a bit about that question. Actually, sure. yeah, It's the kind of question I like to have. It's a really right. good question. Yeah. Um, However, I'm going to put a pin in it. Okay. Let's come back to that question Great. in a couple minutes. Sure. So just to finish the thing about, quote, complete experience, concentration power, sensory clarity, equanimity. You can think of equanimity as the ability to allow sensory experience to come and go without push and pull. So notice I've mentioned three abilities. Mm -hmm. So abilities... You can be born with abilities, but you can also cultivate abilities. And the great, if there's one single astounding world shaking discovery that Asia made that no one else noticed, if I had to point to one thing that Asia noticed clearly and essentially no one else noticed, what Asia noticed 
is that these attentional skills are not a little bit, but majorly cultivatable by just about anyone. Mm. That's huge. Majorly cultivatable. Meaning if you establish what I call the pillars of practice, retreat practice, life practice, get support for your practice, give support Mm. to other people in different ways. Those are the four pillars of practice. If you establish and maintain those pillars, there's a high probability you will dramatically, not a little bit, but dramatically elevate your base level of concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By base level, we mean how clear, concentrated, and equanimous you are in daily life when you're not particularly trying to be that way. Yeah. So just like your base level of physical strength is not how strong you are while you're pumping iron. It's how strong you are during the day because you pumped iron. Right. So your base level of mindful awareness or mindfulness strength, or you could just say mind strength, maybe. Your base level of mind strength is how strong your concentration, clarity, and equanimity are when you're not particularly trying to be that way. Right. Well, you, you can dramatically elevate that with time. Well, now let's connect the dots. So your ability to experience my boss is an asshole mm-hmm. with concentration, clarity, and equanimity. So let's start with clarity. What part is mental image right now? What part is mental talk right now? What part is body emotion right now? That's untangling the strands. Now, the other part of clarity is, is there some subtle mental image I might be missing? Some subtle location where there's body emotion that I might be missing. That's the other subdimension of clarity. So now we're clear what part is see, what part is hear, what part is feel. Now we focus all our attention for just that instant on just that image. There's a momentary high concentration. Mm. A momentary high concentration on your own mental talk. A momentary high concentration on your body emotion. Just so I'm clear. So I might, so initially, okay, see my boss and all of it, that that mental image, just let that flourish for a moment. Just see it fully, whatever the image is. Maybe my boss is doing something. Maybe who knows what that is, but just, okay, there it is. There's the image. Excellent. That's right. And here's the talk. So there's a moment of high concentration. Here's the body emotion. And I see a lot of people think mindfulness is just acknowledging, oh, this is happening, this is happening, that's happening. That's of limited use. Mm -hmm. That moment of high concentration where you are fully present for 500 milliseconds to, you know, a few thousand milliseconds, that moment of high concentration, another moment of high concentration. So even though your attention is going from place to place, you're tasting momentary concentration. And then the equanimity is you give that permission to last as long or as short as it wants, to expand and contract as it wishes. So your ability to bring these three attentional skills to the experience of my boss is bugging me, that measures your ability to have a complete experience of my boss bugging me. Mm -hmm. Now, As your experience 
of my boss bugging me becomes more and more complete as the days, weeks, months, years, and decades of your life progress. As your abilities, as your mindful awareness abilities grow, your ability to experience any negativity, not just my boss is bugging me, right. but... Because it moves my, anyway. It's your, if it's not your boss, it's your wife or traffic. Or your aching body as you grow right. older. Right. It's always it's a moving target. There's always something. Remember, there's five dimensions to happiness. This is the dimension of relief from suffering. Without loss mm -hmm. of generality, we're yeah. talking about this. But the same principles apply elsewhere. So, and again, I just want to clarify, because again, the tendency, at least in our culture, the programming is if your boss is an asshole, you got to get rid of the boss or he has to, you got to figure out how to fix this problem. And in the external sense, that belongs to another dimension. Okay. Remember I said relief from suffering, there's various levels. Yes. The most obvious level is get a different job. Right. There's nothing in mindfulness that says you have to stay in a negative situation. <laughs> yeah, thank you for but that. But there's something in mindfulness that does say yeah. if you want to change the situation, your mindfulness skills are going to allow you to do that more skillfully. Mm. So yeah. changing the situation, getting a different job, or getting your boss censured, mm -hmm. or whatever action you need to take, or a different woman, or a different uh, intimate partner. Whatever it is, that's yeah. a dimension of happiness. This mm -hmm. is why it is so fundamental that people realize we're not just talking about one or two things here. Yeah. We're essentially talking about one skill set applied to everything. Mm -hmm. So you can use your mindfulness skills to correct your boss situation. You can also use your mindfulness skills to have a complete experience of your boss situation. And if you get good enough at that, no matter how big an asshole your boss is, you won't suffer. Now, here's the thing. People think, oh, if I don't suffer because of who's my boss, all of us have, all Americans have a boss now, and half of America, or probably two-thirds of America, hates his guts. <laughs> right? The mm -hmm. boss of the federal government of the U.S. Right. So, so right. yeah, right. So this is going to bother people. So I'm giving you a heads up. Good. It's okay. We welcome you're going to be welcome. bothered now, probably, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe you not. like Some of us will love it. <laughs> Some of us maybe you're going to like what I'm going to say, but you're yeah. probably uh, two thirds probability. You are not going to like what I'm about to say. It is of the utmost importance that you become the kind of person that does not suffer because of the shenanigans mm. that are going on. Now, what everyone thinks is, if I don't suffer because of it, I'm going to be indifferent to it. And that is profoundly incorrect. Profoundly incorrect. Yeah. There's a difference between pain and suffering. Physical pain... Physical suffering, emotional pain, emotional suffering, mental pain, mental suffering. There's a relationship between them, but they are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. Suffering is what happens when you have physical, mental, or emotional pain, and you don't know how to experience it completely. That's suffering. Mm. 
If you know how to experience physical, mental, and or emotional pain completely, then you have physical, mental, and or emotional pain, and that will motivate and direct you to act in the world, but it will not right. drive and distort you. Right. This is deep, deep, which Which, which deep. just causes us to create more suffering. That's the perpetuation <laughs> of you suffering. Bet. That's the karma cycle. Yeah. Exactly. So now, at last, we have a clear paradigm. You go off and you isolate, but you potentiate that isolation by doing intentional techniques. And as a result of that, you elevate your base level of mindful awareness. As the result of that, you're able to have pleasant and or unpleasant experiences more and more fully. Right. At some point, you're able to experience all the pleasures and pains of life so fully that you no longer think of your happiness as being dependent on conditions. In other words, to get back to the boss story, yeah. there are ways that a person could eliminate the current boss of the United States mm -hmm. that are not ethically acceptable. Mm -hmm. A lot of them, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we would never go there in our culture. Or if someone did, they would be crazy or a major criminal. I mean, right. like huge, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, we don't care who it is. Right. You're either crazy or you are a major criminal. Yeah. If you were to do something along those yeah. lines. So, since we're not going to do anything like that, and if you don't like him, you may or may not be able to get rid of him. And who knows? Maybe there'll be another four years yeah. of this. And if you don't like him, and you can't get rid of him. And, and even if you like him, and there's another four years of this, there's still the opposition that you're, so it's like, regardless of what happens from the current paradigm that we're, our attention is in, whether you like him or don't like him, it's like everyone loses no matter what happens in a sense from that paradigm. And it's in a sense that there's just going to be <laughs> suffering perpetually. No matter what, no yeah. matter who wins, half the people are miserable. Right. So, and that's a very good point. So when I talk about happiness independent of conditions, it means Let's just say, and I'm not saying this is the case, but just for argument's sake, let's say that I don't like the current boss of the mm -hmm. U.S. Mm -hmm. And let's say that there's another six years of him. Mm -hmm. So that means six years of daily mental and emotional pain for me. Mm -hmm. That doesn't have to mean six years of mental and emotional suffering for me. Mm. So... Why would someone do something that violates good conduct? How do humans get distorted? Well, there's a lot of mechanisms, but one of the mechanisms is that the suffering becomes so great that it distorts their behavior and perception. And then they do something that is truly horrific that causes massive suffering. Because, right, out of the, the attempt to eliminate the external cause of suffering that actually only has the opposite effect of just perpetuating more suffering. Yeah. So unless you somehow re-engineer things so that you can have more and more complete experience of things, that will gradually sort of reverse the karma cycle on this planet. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's two things that you can do about the boss of the United States. One is you can change him. But you can only do that within certain ethical guidelines.
Mm-hmm. And within those ethical guidelines, you may not be able to change him. Right. And then there'll be years and years and years. Now, I would claim that, let's say that I have six years of rage, tear, grief, and shame and confusion because of what's going on in the mm-hmm. federal government of the country that I was born in. So that pain, if it doesn't cause me suffering, my happiness will not be dependent on changing the president. I'll still be happy. Right. But in addition to that, I'm going to claim that the complete pain will motivate and direct me to the most effective form of action. Right. In the moment. Well, no, actually in the long term. Okay. In the long term, I'll be able to do things that are optimally effective to change the situation. But let me, let me just, I want to make sure that I, again, for our listeners out there and for myself, I want to make sure. So through a daily, even 10 minute practice of we're taking into this mindfulness practice, having complete experiences, meaning seeing the full mental image. Let's And let's take the president of the United States for right now, just since we're in this example, seeing that image fully feeling or so seeing the, the mental image, the mental talk, the physical sensations and having just spending time with that in even a short few minute practice as I'm allowing the, let's say, fullness of that to be experienced, I'm essentially creating a condition within which, oh, more and more, I may still, it may still hurt in a sense that that's the person running the show, but I'm not suffering because I'm kind of allowing that to complete itself, if you will, in that daily practice. That's right. And so this is one example. It's just one of what I would mean by happiness independent of conditions. Now, I would claim that another dimension of happiness is skillful action in the world. So let's say that I want to do something to change the politics of the U.S., my ability to do that will be enhanced with mindfulness skills. Mm -hmm. So this is what I mean when I say it's very, very broad. However, I think this might be a good place to go back to your friend's question to me, because that you fed me a great question. What we just described, this ability to experience And if people are listening carefully, they'll notice that I've said three things. Mental pain, physical pain, emotional pain. Often it's all three at the same time. The ability to experience that in a state of concentration, clarity, equanimity leads with time to the ability to have an experience of that that is so complete that it doesn't cause suffering. That in turn leads to the ability to love deeply. Yeah. And love deeply is another technical term. So whenever I say technical term, that's a heads up. Oh, okay. There's going to maybe be some complexity and subtlety coming. Well, I think that's good because that word love, you know, I'm a former United States Air Force captain and I'm on board with love, but 
And at the same time, I know, you know, that that's a word that's getting thrown around a lot in the kind of new age conversation. You know, it's love and all we need is love. And that's sort of a resurgence of that. Well, I'm, I'm, and I'm on board, but I love that. That's what I think you do so brilliantly, right? Merging science and spirituality because of your, your background and your interest. And so good. I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Love deeply. Technical term, because the yeah. deeply, <laughs> okay, love uh-huh. is whatever it is. Yeah. Love deeply is an aspect of complete experience. So how do you know, once again, without loss of generality, that phrase you'll hear me use without loss of generality, mm-hmm. it's a math term. It's okay. what math, math geeks use, that phrase. It means we're talking about a specific aspect of a much broader issue. Mm -hmm. And the principles that we're applying to this specific little part, those very same principles apply to the whole. So in the context of mathematics, they'll say, okay, we're talking about A and B without loss of generality, meaning the same principle that we're applying to A and B applies to PQRS Mm-hmm. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Mm-hmm. So with we're talking about one specific potential form of suffering, which is you don't like your boss at work or you don't like your boss in the federal government or mm-hmm. you don't like whatever. Whatever. And it's a person. So we'll, without loss of generality, we'll talk about a person. Mm-hmm. So how do you know who your boss is at work? How do you know who the boss of the federal government is in Washington? Right now, Mm -hmm. if you were to just close your eyes and say, you know, who's boss? Well, you get a mental image. Right. You get some comments. You hear their voice. You hear your voice fighting with them. What have you? Person calling the shots. Like my mind would go, it's the one kind of telling me what I'm supposed to be doing, and that I. Well, but you're going to get a mental picture of a specific person. Person, yes. And then you're going to have either hear their voice, your voice, or both voices in your mental talk, and then you're going to have whatever emotions you have. So as your concentration, clarity, and equanimity base level increases, you have increasingly more and more of a complete experience of knowing who the president of the United States is in this moment. As you have more and more complete experience of that, that experience goes from being a frozen particle to a flowing wave. Mm -hmm. At some point, that wave becomes so fluid that it actually no longer is a particle. And you experience, let's just say Trump, without loss of generality. It could be anyone, your wife. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know. Traffic. Whatever. You experience that person being vibrated by the flow of deep consciousness vibrated into existence in that moment from a kind of spiritual source as a wave activity, you and the universe in this moment are loving that person into existence. Hmm. Amor primero. That love, which is the deep love, if that comes first, then your relationship to that person, your behavior towards that person, what you do for or to that person will, with time, 
have a tendency to be optimal. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, as you're sharing that, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, my mom, she won't even say the words president and Trump in the same sentence. She is incredibly angry and hurt. And, and I'm noticing that resistance, you know, there's a sort of popular phrase in the culture, what you resist persists. And what I'm hearing you really describe in a very uh, kind of very technical way, essentially, is how our resistance resistance to even acknowledging what is so there's like so much acknowledgement in our resistance to acknowledging it but that in a way that just perpetuates the suffering and the anger and the tension and the and the body and the oh, the tightening and what i'm hearing you describe is really a, an experience of oh, allowing it to fully fully have its just in your awareness not doesn't mean you're going to vote for the guy again so that you can, like you said, as you stay in the hurtful situation, but here it is, there's nothing we can do about it in this moment, whether again, it's the president or sitting in traffic that I'm frustrated by, that in allowing my conscious awareness, my, my concentration, my sensory clarity, and my equanimity, allowing all of that to just be and percolate up, that I'm actually dissolving the suffering, the tightening around whatever that thorn is so that in a sense, it, what I'm really ultimately hearing is that I can really make my choices from a place yeah, of clarity. Exactly. And taking action that is effective in the world mm -hmm. is important. Yeah. So my claim is that cultivating these attentional skills systematically will allow you to love deeply yeah. And therefore act effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. I want to just put a cap on that, Shenzhen, because there's a few other things that I want to just address with you and, and ask you about. And there's so much, there's so much depth and richness and simplicity at the same time. And I want to encourage everyone to read the science of enlightenment. And at the end, Shenzhen, we'll also ask you to share with my listeners where they can do your training and learn more about your work and all sure. that. But I want to talk to you about two things really quickly. Ah, oh, gosh, really quickly. But uh, <laughs> in, you saw how really quickly. Yeah, uh, I know, <laughs> I know. Well, so, so what I want to actually finish with, what I think we'll do today is, well, uh, first, I want to come back to that question. from Yeah, the, it, that is such a great question. I want to make sure we address that. Which one? So your friend's question. Yeah, his question. When I start, that's it's right. like people say mindfulness is the cat's meow, but when I sit down and meditate, I don't get any benefits that mm -hmm. I notice. Particularly, my mind wanders, and, and then I get up. So definitely have some things to say about that. One practical suggestion. So we're talking about the report that we hear very often from the general public. So a lot of people have tried meditation. I mean, sure. I would say whatever someone may think about U.S. culture, it is probably the case that a really significant proportion of the U.S. population has at least, you know, once or twice tried to meditate. And I would say that quitting smoking and starting meditation are kind of the same in terms of level of difficulty. <laughs> so people sit down and they try to meditate and basically they discover that they're just all over the place yeah, and they're... That's the point. And then they get up and they don't really notice 
that it really did anything. So definitely some things to say about this. Two things from a practical point of view, and then um, some other from a theoretical point of view. So if you've tried to meditate, which you probably have statistically, and it was just frustrating and didn't do much for you, I can suggest two practical steps if you're interested in pursuing meditation. And by the way, I should say, I tend to use the word mindfulness, the word meditation, and the phrase contemplative practice pretty much as synonyms. And we can talk about the semantics of these things, but that's how I'm using these words now. So two practical suggestions. We talk about mindful skills, these attentional skills. So that means a skill like playing the piano. If you wanted to play the piano, you have your best chance of learning to do that if you have a piano teacher, someone that actually can sit down with you at the keyboard and take you through it. Likewise, you have your best chance of success with mindfulness practice if you have a competent personal mindfulness coach. Mm. That would be analogous to having your own workout coach. You know you're going to get your best workout if you have a competent professional workout coach. Now, in the real world, the only people I know that can afford uh, personal workout coaches are very wealthy people. But the good news is, in the spiritual world, You can go to unifiedmindfulness.com, which is my facilitator training uh, program, and uh, we'll provide you with a competent personal mindfulness coach. Yeah, I've actually signed up myself for that. Uh, So in any event, one of the reasons that you may have not found it very beneficial is that you did not actually have optimal instruction because you didn't have someone sitting down with you and taking you through the process. So my first practical suggestion is get a competent teacher to work with. Good news is there's hundreds and hundreds of them now, more and more and more. There's just a lot of people that are getting good at guiding people with mindfulness. So that's a good thing. So number one, get a coach. But number two, if you don't get a coach but you want a tip for being able to have a quality experience in just 10 minutes, then my suggestion would be something that I call spoken labels. So let's just, once again, without loss of generality, okay, we're Mm -hmm. talking about a specific, but general principle applies much, much more broadly. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to I don't like my boss at work Mm -hmm. and it's coming up. So I've got the mental image, the mental talk, the body emotion. You could apply a technique where when you have a mental image, you think see to remind you to see that image. When you hear mental talk hear, you could say to yourself hear and you really listen. You could say to yourself feel to remind yourself to really feel the body emotions. You could use mental labels. That may help. See, hear, feel. You only need three words to characterize everything that you will experience from this instant 
to the instant you draw your last breath. Three words suffice. See, hear, feel. Mm -hmm. It could be an inner activity, image, talk, body, emotion. Could be an outer activity, sight, sound, touch. It could be a relative restful state of a blank screen, a relaxed body, uh, silence around you. It could be an absolute flow state of energy where you see the deepest part of consciousness, the source. You see source, you hear source, you feel source. It could be the absolute activity of deepest consciousness, or it could be the absolute rest of deepest consciousness, which are beyond time and space experience, but yet can sort of be experienced, interestingly. So whether it's surface or source, whether it's inner, outer, active, restful, absolute, relative, from this instant to the instant you die, you will be seen things, you will be hearing things, you will be feeling things. Mm -hmm. Let's say that you have difficulty concentrating. So instead of mentally labeling see, hear, feel, you force yourself to say the words out loud in a gentle matter-of-fact voice. I'll demonstrate see, feel, see, see. Hear, feel. You cannot be grossly spaced out and continuously label your experience at the same time. So you were just, as you were doing that, you were just basically shifting your focus, your concentration from seeing to then hearing to then feeling, seeing. That's what you were doing. Uh, close. Close. If you say I was shifting, it sounds like I was intentionally moving. I was just letting whatever pulls me pull me. Ah, uh, okay, good. Yeah. But I was reporting in a gentle matter of fact voice. Yeah. So if you only have 10 minutes, if you use spoken labels and an equanimity tone in your voice, as soon as the label stream stops, you know that you're spacing out or getting caught up. Got it. As long as the equanimity tone is continuing, you have some degree of non-interference, some degree of acceptance of those uh, sensory events. So from a practical point of view, if you've tried to meditate, and this is, you can tell this to your friend or you can listen to the mm -hmm. program. If you've tried to meditate and you've had the experience that a lot of people have, yeah. which is well, it doesn't really do anything for me in 10 minutes or even 20 minutes. Well, I can make some suggestions where a 10-minute meditation might do something for you. Number one, if you're working with a competent coach. And number two, even if you're not, try spoken labels with an equanimity voice. Yeah. Now, on the theoretical side, though, well, I like popular expressions. So there's this expression, let's get real. <laughs> uh -huh. Let's get real. Uh -huh. So let's get real about what mindfulness is and what mindfulness isn't. Mindfulness is not, in general, a quick fix. It's a training that you establish and maintain daily for your entire life. Yeah. Now you might say, well, I just want a quick fix. Well, 
fine, but that's going to keep you at the surface level of happiness. Yeah. And when shit happens, you won't be prepared. I want to, you know, I, the only quick fix that I can think of that has come to my mind is when we got a puppy and she used to knock her water bowl over because it was, I had this flimsy water bowl for her and she would knock the water over all the time. I was constantly cleaning up water. And then I saw my stepfather had a big clay bowls for his big dogs and they, you know, I could barely even lift the bowl. So I remember being so excited. I found a quick fix for this water problem. And I got a big old bowl at the hardware store for my puppy. And lo and behold, it solved the water. She couldn't knock the bowl over anymore. That's like when I think of quick fixes, pretty much that's the only one that comes to mind. It didn't solve my happiness. It didn't solve the bigger challenges of life. It's like, so I I think that whole idea of the quick fix in our culture. And I want to, you know, acknowledge too that Shinzen, and maybe you can say something about this and, and we'll conclude that it seems also, you know, we're constantly, there's so many quick fixes we're looking to do. I have so much email to do. I have to, uh, you know, I, again, I have to go to work. I have to do this. I have to do that. I don't have time to meditate. Well, there's no one that lacks 10 minutes to meditate each day. Well, well I wonder what you would say though about, you know, as a way of saying it, we don't have time to not meditate. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. So my minimum is 10 minutes each day of formal practice. And most people have that amount of time. However, we need to get away from the notion that meditation or mindfulness is something you have to do in stillness. You don't have to be right. seated. You don't have to be lying down. I have students that are very busy. They do their formal practice in motion mm. They see, hear, and feel driving the car to and from work. Their commute is their formal practice. Now, notice I'm saying it's a formal practice. They see all and only the visual experience they need to safely drive the car. They hear all and only the auditory experience they need to safely drive the car. They feel all and only the somatic experience they need to safely drive the car. What else is there besides the see, hear, feel, drive? Well, there's all the irrelevant stuff that's in the background. So we need to get away from the notion when we talk about even formal meditation that that's necessarily with your eyes closed, seated, or lying down. You can do it in motion. So I mentioned two things. One, practical suggestions, if you found meditation difficult, get a teacher to work with you. And if you can't do that, use spoken labels in an equanimity voice. There's a gazillion resources on the internet that will teach you about noting and labeling. Just put in those words uh, and Mm -hmm. my name, for example, Mm -hmm. and it would come up. So in any event... Then I said there'd be two practical things, and then there's a couple theoretical things. Mm -hmm. The theoretical thing is people need to get real about what contemplative practice is. It's a long-term endeavor. It's not a quick fix, but it more than compensates for that by being a deep fix and a broad fix. It is deep. It is broad. It is not necessarily fast. Every now and again, you get a genius that sort of gets enlightenment without meditating or what have you. But most of us, I mean, to be honest, the really good stuff for me has only been in the last few years. 
the really good stuff. Mm. And it's that means I'm nigh yeah. unto 50 yeah. years of practice here. Yeah. You can't imagine how good it gets at the deep end of this pond. But I definitely remember how frustrating it is at the beginning of that pond. The other (laughs) theoretical thing that I would mention is you've pointed to what is probably the single major force that prevents the world from becoming enlightened. The single biggest force that prevents the world from becoming enlightened is that when people first sit down to try to do the practices that will make enlightenment probable, they don't really get much strong reward immediately. Mm-hmm. They Hopefully, they'll get enough reward to stay with it year after year, decade after decade, but they may not. If everyone that told me, oh, mindfulness makes sense and I'm absolutely going to do it for my whole life actually did that, I would have changed the course of human history. So, however, on a theoretical side, there may, I'm using the modal phrase may, not will, there may be a fix for that. There may be a deus ex machina, a savior from an unexpected direction. And that unexpected direction is neuroscience specifically contemplative neuroscience, Mm. we may find a way to accelerate mindfulness through non-invasive neuromodulation technologies. May, I repeat, we have not. We have not found that technology yet. And you'll know when we find that technology, because the world will start to change in a good way, dramatically. And until you start to see millions and millions and millions of enlightened people, hundreds of millions, tens of millions, until we start to see that on this planet, we don't have the technology. But it is theoretically possible that we could find a way to 10x the process Mm -hmm. so that the experience of the 10-year meditator happens in the first few months of your practice. And the experience of the 50-year meditator happens in the the first few years of your practice. So I can be hopeful that that is not unreasonable. And therefore, I can be, in some ways, optimistic that at the 11th hour, our species might be able to pull the bacon out of the fire mm. for this planet. Mm. I know we're, we're out of time, but I want to, there was a question that, that arose in the very first moments of our conversation. And I wonder if you could just leave us with the one key insight. What does a man really need to know to do intimate relationship? Well, kind of circling all the way back. Uh-huh. Around. Well, <laughs> good news. We already covered it. Mm. have a complete experience of the see, hear, feel of your partner. And something you, which you can do, again, just in a, in a simple practice, you can do while driving to work? Well, well, no, we'll just say partner because men are gay also. So. Absolutely. And, and many women are listening too as well, by the way. Yeah. So it actually doesn't matter what the gender is. Yeah. We can mod out gender and sexual orientation and other forms of 
yeah, orientation. Uh, if we mod that out, if we just factor that out, let's say it's a physical relationship. Once again, without loss of generality. So in the act of physical love, do you see your partner? Do you hear your partner? Do you touch your partner? When you're not in the presence of your partner, how do you know you have a partner? You see them in image space. You hear them in mental talk space. You feel them in your emotional space. Mm. When you are annoyed by your partner, confused by your partner, how do you know you're annoyed? How do you know you're confused? How do you know you're hurt? Comes up in mental image, mental talk, body emotion. So the relationship is the householder's monastery. And all the principles we talked about, you simply apply in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I think we'll leave it there for now. Shinzen, where can people learn more about your work and what you're up to? Sure. Let's talk about generics and then we'll talk about specifics. Sure. So in general, let's say you're interested in mindfulness, meditation, contemplative practice, this area. There's some general principles. I actually briefly already mentioned them. But retreat practice, life practice, which is what you do in daily life between retreats, getting support, part of which is having your own personal coach, and then giving support, which is in general what you put out in the world, Mm -hmm. but maybe at some point you actually learn how to teach. Yeah these things. So I call those the four pillars of practice. And it doesn't matter what tradition you're working with, what organization, what teacher or set of teachers you utilize. If you want to optimize your probability of success, you need to establish and maintain those four pillars. Once again, retreat practice, life practice, get support, give support. And this is true across all traditions. I can speak to my own organization now in specific. Most people can't get away for residential retreats. So we have something called the home practice program that pipes the retreats into your house in four-hour micro-modules. So you can get retreat practice that way. Or you could come to a residential retreat Mm -hmm. with me if your lifestyle allows for it. Or one of my facilitators, assuming you want Mm -hmm. to work within the unified perspective. And I I don't necessarily say it has to be that, obviously. You, You find something that you can relate to. So home practice program for your retreats. There's another website called life practice program for what to do in between retreats. To get support and give support, you go to unifiedmindfulness.com. That's Juliana Ray's website. Okay. She can provide you with coaches and she can train you to be a coach. And that's our official sort of facilitator training program. In addition to that, there's just gazillion free resources. I've got two YouTube channels, massive articles out there. So anyone that knows how to click on a mouse can get a lot of free stuff with my name. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Shinzen, and again, all this for those listening, this will all be in the show notes. Uh, you don't have to take notes on all that. It'll be right on the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. 
Shenzhen, I know that we are just scratching the surface. There's so much more that I, I want to explore with you. But I guess that's what, you know, the beauty of mindfulness is we are scratching the surface and seeing what we smell when we scratch it. It's like scratch and sniff. <laughs> scratch and sniff the surface. What do we see? What do we feel? What do we what do you smell? So I just want to thank you again so much for saying yes to this and coming on this program. It's been an honor and incredibly enlightening to speak with you. Well, I totally enjoyed myself and keep up the great work, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Shenzhen Young. Find Shenzhen at a few different websites, lifepracticeprogram.com, homepracticeprogram.com, and unifiedmindfulness.com. Of course, these links and any additional resources, books, including the Science of Enlightenment and the Periodic Table of Happiness, as well as Shinzen's key takeaway will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash menthiswaypodcast. If you were served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or just write a review so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.